Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. For the past few years, I've been teaching an adult Sunday school class called A Good Confession. It's a chapter-by-chapter, line-by-line exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are 33 chapters in the Confession, and we've just reached chapter 20, which focuses on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. This was apparently the most contested subject in the entire Confession when it was written in the 1640s, and the issues that made it difficult then are just as relevant now. If biblical freedom means the freedom to pursue the good, what happens when we don't agree on what is good? If you're convinced the Bible teaches an important truth, and convinced that freedom exists to believe what is true, then how much non-truth can we agree to disagree over? These are some of the complexities we'll try to explore in this episode, so buckle up. Cameron, as you know, in Sunday school, we have just begun a discussion of chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession, which has to do with Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about religious liberty in a large sense, and we talked about religious liberty or religious freedom as the freedom to pursue the good, that from a biblical point of view, freedom isn't the freedom to do whatever you want, it's the freedom to do what you ought to do. So it's freedom from sin and freedom to obey. Well, as we wade into chapter 20, there are a lot of issues that open up, and our Sunday school discussion has at least scratched the surface on some of those, but I thought it might be interesting for us to spend a little bit of time and just try to come to terms with the complexity of this question of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, because it's really not as clear-cut as people often think, and even the way the confession treats it leaves a lot of complexity, I think, on the table that, that we still have to, to wrestle with. So uh, if you're up for it, I thought we'd just spend a little bit of time thinking about uh, Christian liberty. Yeah, let's do it. So uh, I'm thinking about this in terms of freedom from certain things and freedom for certain things. That's a kind of a, a contrast that people often use. Sure in this discussion. And it, it kind of seems like the first section of chapter 20 is talking about the things that Christ frees us from our conscious from. So, you know, the penalty of sin and death and, and the devil and, and the covenant of works and all of that, where section two that we talked about on Sunday is a little bit more getting into that realm of now here's what you are free to do and then all of the kind of distinctions that arise there like but not this and sort of not this yeah. is that a good way to think about it yeah i mean i think there's probably a little bit of freedom from and freedom to right from the beginning yeah. it's just that it's 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 not the stuff we expect you know i think mm-hmm. usually when we talk about christian liberty we we're thinking um like, is it okay to drink in moderation? Is it okay or not to smoke? Is it okay to go to the movies or, or not to go to the movies? Basically, um, moral stands that Christians in the 20th century have taken 
And now we go back and we ask ourselves, wait a second, what does the Bible actually teach about this? And so we often find ourselves in that situation similar, I, I think, to what people like Peter would have experienced when uh, the the food that they had grown up believing was unclean. Now God says, this is edible. You can, you can eat this. And and it kind of rewrites the rules of what you can do. And so I think for a lot of people in the church, the discussion about Christian liberty is that kind of discussion. But to be honest, I think that is the, as we said in class, the low-hanging fruit. There are much more complicated questions related to conscience that um, this chapter kind of gets into. So it begins by saying, oh, we've got this great freedom from sin, from its consequences and its power, and, and this freedom to pursue the good, this freedom to essentially do what human beings were made to do. But then as we go forward, we kind of get into, I think, the more, let's say, the, the complicated ground. Hmm. And, and it really does get into stuff that, that we might say is subjective. So we know, like, as a general principle... Christian freedom means that we are not subject to man's laws, that we are free from any obligation, that no sort of human law can bind the conscience, that we're only bound by what Scripture teaches and, as the Confession would say, the good and necessary consequences that follow from what Scripture teaches. So we're bound by what, you know, you can find a proof text to say, but also by the logical implications of what those proof texts teach as well. Yeah. But beyond that, free. And so that's the, the liberating part. <laughs> Section two goes farther and, and you know says something I think is just kind of amazing, which is that if we allow ourselves to be bound by man's laws, if we allow our consciences to believe that something is sinful even when it isn't, that we're actually betraying true freedom. So it undermines that typical weaker brother approach that we take where we say, okay, Paul says, you know, you've got to be mindful of the conscience of weaker brethren. So that means whoever has the most convictions is the guy who gets to draw the line on what's acceptable. Mm -hmm. So maybe the Bible is okay with this, but because somebody thinks it's wrong, we all have to be careful not say anything about it. Well, you know, the confession challenges that and says that, that we actually, while we do want to be mindful of the consciences of others, we also need to be educating them on where their consciences are inappropriately bound so that they yeah. can experience true freedom. Yeah. As I was sitting in Sunday school thinking about that point, I was thinking about the verse, though, in Corinthians where Paul doesn't he say like something along the lines of if eating meat would cause my brother to stumble, then I'd rather never eat meat again Yes, for the sake of love. So doesn't that sound like he's saying they're sort of setting the standard now and they're, it does. they're kind of dictating my behavior? No, it does. And I think that's, that's the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have to ask yourself, so how far would he take that? Yeah. Does that mean that he is never going to eat meat again in any context, whether this weaker brother is around or not, and that he's not going to talk about it anymore. Well, we know that it's not that because he's talking about it. Right. Like he's devoting all of this. So, so he's not saying that because there are people with weaker consciences who believe that things that are f- totally fine are actually sinful, 
we should act as if they are. He's writing this to set the record straight on that, right? He's pointing out that these are not biblical convictions, mm-hmm. that these are, are man-made beliefs. But then he's also showing that he's going to be considerate and gracious towards people who hold them, not arrogant and insulting. You know, he's not going to try to to get people to violate their consciences, which would be sinful, even if their consciences are misled. But the fact that he's writing about this suggests to me that he will do what he can do to liberate those consciences. Right, he does want them to understand what true freedom is. Yeah. Doesn't want them to, you know, return to the captivity of man-made laws. Yeah. So that's the the complexity, I think, yeah. of of this conscience thing. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, yes, you've got to make allowances and be gracious. You can't flaunt your freedom, but at the same time, you can't surrender it. Yeah, because that would be violating your own conscience in a way. I think that's what the confession means when it's talking about um, destroying reason, right? Like if you subject yourself to this rule that you know is not of God, then you're, you're somehow debasing yourself. Exactly. Exactly. So this is enough, I think just to illustrate that there's a, there's a complexity to these questions of conscience that may not be apparent Mm -hmm. at first that, that, Essentially, the the challenge is, it's all very well to say that we are free to pursue the good. The problem is, what happens when our idea of what is good is different? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we deal with one another when my idea of pursuing the good is different from your idea of pursuing the good? Mm-hmm. So, one of the resources that I recommended in Sunday school class was John Bauer's critical edition of the Westminster Confession. And we looked at an excerpt from the fifth chapter of the introduction, which recounts the history of the writing of chapter 20. Because he says this is actually the most contentious issue in the whole Westminster Assembly, that that there's a lot of agreements on a lot of stuff. It's not election and predestination that they're going at each other hammer and tongs over. It's this, Christian liberty, because... The Westminster Assembly is a diverse group of divines. Mm -hmm. There are differences in ecclesiology, and so there's a concern. Where is the line between a conscientious objector and a false teacher? Right. If I don't agree that your form of church government is correct, Mm -hmm. am I just a brother who has a different view of how to interpret scripture or am I a false teacher who needs to be corrected and if necessary punished for my views? That's what's at stake Mm -hmm. in the debate for them. It makes me wonder if all of these debates or differences over freedom of conscience really just come down to interpretation of scripture because even somebody that would say, well, my view is a good and necessary consequence of something that's in Scripture. Ultimately, what you're doing is saying that my view is backed by the Word of God. Otherwise, I wouldn't hold it. And so everyone thinks that, but not everyone's correct. Right. <laughs> and I think, you know, some errors are egregious and are 
easy to refute. Others are not as easy. You know, so there, there are issues where both sides may have decent scriptural arguments, and it's not so clear that one is definitely wrong and the other is definitely right. And I think those are the areas where a lot of deference might be called upon. Um, you know, we talked about the preliminary principles outlined in our Book of Church Order, and one of those, uh, Principle 5, addresses the reality that you know people of goodwill um, can come to different interpretations mm-hmm. and that in cases like that there should be a lot of mutual forbearance that um, we should treat one another graciously despite those differences so i think that probably originally is kind of setting the tone for how our denomination might deal with other denominations, other churches that interpret Scripture differently, but obviously it also gives us a way of thinking about how we as individuals would treat those who have differences. So I think where we differ on what is good, we show a lot of forbearance and patience with one another, but we also try to educate to elucidate our arguments Mm -hmm. it may be that by doing that we win people over it may be that by doing that we recognize our own position is the weaker position and and we're the ones that need to change but Mm -hmm. but through that dialogue um it's possible to get closer to the truth not that we would get to you know 100 agreement but it seems to me like in an atmosphere of mutual understanding Mm -hmm. and uh uh a willingness to, you know, we say uh, agree to disagree, but but I prefer err on the side of grace. Yeah. That in that kind of an environment, it's possible for people to develop their views and even to change them. Whereas in a more hostile environment where we are, kind of our egos are involved and, and it's a heated debate, mm-hmm. people tend to just hunker down. And, and try to hold the ground that they've staked out, whether it's the right ground or not. So you don't treat people out of respect as a means to an end, but one of the results of treating people with respect is that it's easier for them, if they have to, to concede where you're right and they're wrong. So we've said, or the divines say, that these things apply to matters of faith and worship. I'm curious if conversation changes at all when you open it up a little bit broader, say to to politics, how we you know how we vote, how we think about policy or or government, those sorts of things. Definitely, I mean, we talked about this a little bit in in class that uh, we used the question of the legalization of marijuana as a sort of hypothetical, and in talking about that, what I was trying to to unpack was if there's not a verse in the Bible that says marijuana is bad, does that mean it's okay? And so we talked about the possibility that we could use good and necessary consequence and take the argument about intoxication, you know, that drinking in moderation is not condemned, but drunkenness is, and then apply that logic to the case of marijuana and say, is it possible to use this in moderation or does it lead to impairments, um, you know, as a result of its use? And 
if you can figure out which of those two is the case, it can guide the way that you would see this, whether it's possible for um, you know, a path of moderation as opposed to prohibition being the right mm-hmm. approach. One thing we didn't talk about, though, in, in that context was um, the distinction that something can be sinful that doesn't necessarily mean it should be illegal. Yeah. Right? And so that's another area where we would have to do some thinking. Because right? there are a lot of things that, that Scripture clearly condemns, but we wouldn't necessarily want to see them codified in civil law. Mm-hmm. Right? We see those things as being church matters, not civil matters. So um, there are things in your life, you might have you know, sin in your life, uh, things that you need to address, you might be unrepentant and find yourself as a member of a church facing church discipline. But should you also have to go to court <laughs> and face civil penalties and yeah. potentially imprisonment because you refuse to repent of, of whatever sin it is? Um, it, it used to be that those two things would be sort of grouped together, right? That there yeah. would, in fact be civil magistrates involved in in this punishment, and it would be possible for those lines to be blurred, uh, we tend now to try to be really careful about distinguishing those different spheres of sovereignty. And, and the Westminster Divines are kind of working that out. You know, they have inherited a state church, and their task is to reform that state church. And so there's an assumption that Parliament, for example, has power over the church. And one of the, you know, live questions in the Westminster debate is whether or not the church will have power to excommunicate or if that's something Parliament has to do. Mm -hmm. And Parliament insists that they're the ones who have that power. So this ends up being like something, you know, they write about, they publish different cases and stuff. And there's actually, Bauer quotes this, a very pointed response from Parliament to the divines saying, you know, if you think you should have this power, then you need to give us arguments with some scripture and don't just use your (laughs) usual tricky, you know, rhetoric. Like we want real concrete stuff. And, And you're like, wow, this is... This is interesting, but but again, it shows you that they are kind of working their way towards things that we now take for granted, and the Reformed understanding of sphere sovereignty is not something that they necessarily understood in the same terms we do. Hmm. You know, and I think they would have been much more um, open towards magistrates involved in in working with the church and in suppressing sin and that sort of thing. So we have some legacies of this, right? For example, the fact that there would be, you know, drug laws, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the civil government would have these what are essentially moral laws on the books. To a lot of people today, that seems outrageous. Like why are there laws controlling people's moral behavior? But a lot of these laws emerge out of a time when that wasn't so strange. I mean, there was an understanding that the civil magistrate had a responsibility to promote the good in society. Yeah. And then it's just a question of, do we agree on what the good is? <laughs> we, I think now would tend to say, 
the civil magistrate should stay out of the question of what is good and just let everybody pursue whatever they want. But is that the case? I mean, let's say hypothetically, Mm -hmm. hypothetically, let's say tomorrow I go to vote. Yeah. And there just happens to be on the ballot this, um, this, you know, choice about whether or not I think marijuana should be right legal in my city or right. not and i let's say i come which to isn't the con- actually hypothetical <laughs> if, you, if you're listening to yeah, this by the way we are literally recording the <laughs> night before this vote yeah. so so we're this is live yeah we're thinking through this um so let's say though again hypothetically that i come to the conclusion that it's impossible to use marijuana without some kind of intoxication yes which is essentially saying it's impossible to smoke marijuana without sinning is what i'm sure saying let's say i might think that christians you know should never do that but should i want my non-christian brothers and sisters to participate in sin no you know i don't think anyone would ever say that so then the question becomes like what grounds do i have for wanting to see that in society then you know what grounds do i have for that kind of like freedom when we say about like freedom for the good freedom to choose the good i'm saying i don't think that is like the good so Mm -hmm. do i want my do i want anybody to have that kind of a freedom right yeah no i think that's that's a good question so yeah. I'm what? not. I don't. I'm not encouraging you to no, no, get too I, political either. No, no. I understand, but but it helps. I think to to kind of think these things through. So, um, I always like to turn it around. When, at least when I'm talking to fellow Christians, right, and say, okay, so we're talking about whether or not you should use state authority to make something that you think is wrong illegal. I'm wondering how you feel about blasphemy laws. Like, do you think we should have blasphemy laws? Like, there are people who uh, disrespect God, who say things about Jesus that they ought not to say. There are uh, people who believe wrong things about predestination and election. Should that be permitted? Mm -hmm. You know, questions like that. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to stir the pot. I just want to start thinking about, like, we already have lines that we've drawn stir the pot in areas that we really do care about yeah right like these are not unimportant questions and yet when it it comes to dealing with our disagreements we don't think first and foremost about legislating solutions right we we tend to think more like oh this is a agree to disagree or this is a winning hearts and minds kind of situation right Mm -hmm. so i think that you know, this is probably one of those areas where you're going to enter into that debate thinking that, okay, now I'm, I'm trying to think through, should I impose my moral view on other people? And I'm going to suggest what it might actually be is more of a political question and that that's okay, that maybe this is a question that you evaluate not only on, on whether or not you think it's it's morally wrong to do this, because you might you might say, yeah, it's morally wrong, but I think a lot of morally wrong things are legal, and maybe this is going to be one of those things. Mm-hmm. But you can also think in terms of impact on society and uh, what are the consequences of making changes like this. And I think those are legitimate questions to have. Mm-hmm. 
um, we do limit freedom in certain areas for the greater good. One of the roles of government, and this is true from a, a Christian theological standpoint, is to restrain evil. Right? The, the reason God establishes magistrates is because of the fall, because you know we, we are uh, constantly doing things we shouldn't do, and we need authority and law in order to rein in some of those excesses. So that's a legitimate role of government. And I would think more along those lines, that, that this may be a legitimate way for the government to restrain evil in society, and that might give you a reason why this might be a moral issue that you would legislate on, whereas some other moral issue you wouldn't. Does that make sense? Again, I'm not I'm not yeah. saying, you know, vote this way, not that way, but just trying to outline some of the thought process that you might go through to mm-hmm. try to make good biblical decisions about these things. Yeah. I think ultimately, I would say that the more you can appreciate the complexities of the question and not make it just a simple, okay, it's wrong, therefore it should be illegal. illegal yeah. You're, you're going to be doing pretty well in your thought. Yeah. I'm thinking back to our conversation a few episodes ago about religious liberty. And even there, I remember you talking about two kinds of liberty that you're for. The one is that sort of democratic liberal freedom where people are free from, you know, being murdered for their faith or whatever it is, like free to believe what they want, that kind of general democratic religious freedom, but also freedom to do the good freedom, you know, and it's almost like you need the condition of religious liberty in the first place to pursue the good. Like you can't, you can't have one without the other in a way. And maybe some of that thinking is applying here too, where, yeah, maybe if, Maybe if I don't think that a certain moral decision should be put into law, what I'm saying is actually like, well, I think there needs to be that context of liberty and I still want my neighbor to pursue the good, yeah, but not be mandated to do it. Right, like right. That. And and by the same token, there may be other areas where you're like, you know what, I'm okay with mandating my neighbor in, in this area. <laughs> you know, and that's I think that's where you have to sort of uh, wrestle a little bit. You know, yeah. some of us have a more, I guess, libertarian outlook. We're like, we'll just let everybody be free to do whatever they want to do and, and don't don't restrict people's freedom. But honestly, I think a Christian theological outlook restrains that tendency somewhat, mm-hmm. you know, and we remind ourselves about the fall of man and, and, and the corruption of human nature, total depravity, things like that. And we're like, well, there is a role for government. We need to not overdo it, but we do need to do it. Yeah. So oftentimes the, the, the best position is going to be somewhere in the middle, right? Not one extreme or the other. So all that just to say that certainly the Westminster Confession doesn't make this stuff easy, but it does give us a framework for thinking through some of these complex issues mm-hmm. so that we're not reducing them down to sound bites, which is the tendency of all debate in our age. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it's it's not only possible, but good for us to think through the complexities of our our own consciences and the consciences of others 
and try to understand what other people's arguments are, where they're coming from, whether or not they may have some merit, and be patient with them. We certainly live in a time when I think our ability to show patience towards those we disagree with is lessened. I think by our anxiety, our, our sense that we're losing, uh, we're less magnanimous than we would be if we thought, oh, you know, we've got all of the winning arguments on our side. Even when you feel like you're in a weak position, though, I think the Christ-like thing to do is to maintain that gracious outlook. And so as we live side by side with people whose consciences direct them towards other things, not just because they're, they're sinners who don't know any better, but because they're, they're honestly working with the, the same data that we are, but coming to different conclusions. Uh, we want to treat people with that Christ-like respect and, and have a respect for their consciences, whether their consciences are, are, are misled or not. Well, thank you for the advice this night before. Um, I appreciate it. It's really helpful to think through these things, actually, and I look forward to continuing on with the confession. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.